This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My special guest today is Tommy James, who, along with his group, The Shondells, produced numerous rock and roll hits. You remembered some of them, Crimson and Clover, Moni Moni, Hanky Panky, 23 golden records, nine smash hit albums. He's one of the great rock and rollers, and he's still going strong. He also penned an autobiography. It's titled The Mob, The Music, and Me, One Hell of a Ride with Tommy James and the Shondells. Without his even knowing it, unwittingly, he became tied to the Genovese crime family in New York. He went to a record label. They signed him up and then made it clear he was an indentured servant. They wouldn't even pay him in terms of royalties. Forget about it. What a life. He hosts a serious XM radio show on Sunday nights called Getting Together with Tommy James. If you're a fan of 1960s rock and roll, you'll want to tune in. My conversation with Tommy in a moment, but now, what's ahead? Well, politics is dominating. We all know what happened in Iowa and New Hampshire. Amy Klobuchar came out a big winner. So did Mayor Pete of South Bend, Indiana. Coming this Saturday, the Nevada caucuses. How will those two do in the Nevada caucuses? They're not as well organized as they were in New Hampshire and Iowa, but they have the surge going for them. Can Joe Biden survive? A week later, we have the South Carolina primary where Joe Biden will make his last stand. Perhaps his last stand. Shouldn't write him off quite yet, not in this turbulent era. But those two contests, the Nevada caucuses coming in a few days, South Carolina primary a week from Saturday, they're going to dominate the news as never before because you have new faces emerging and standing on the sidelines waiting to jump in a week after the South Carolina primary, Michael Bloomberg. We'll discuss him next week. But right now, Amy Klobuchar is now the front runner. The polls don't show it yet, but she did a great speech after her New Hampshire moral victory, better than Mayor Pete, who would have thunk it. On the economic side, this week will be a big week on home builders. The NAHB, National Association of Home Builders, they release their market index on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we'll get housing starts. And on Friday, we'll get existing home sales. Of course, there'll be other news during the week. On Wednesday, the producer price index comes out. Is inflation lurking around the corner? On Thursday, we'll get initial jobless claims. Are they moving up or is the economy still humming along at a strong pace? The Philadelphia Federal Reserve on Thursday will also release their manufacturing index. Is manufacturing beginning to show new signs of life, especially as these trade disputes are being put aside? The investment in manufacturing won't show up until later this year. You don't turn these things on a dime. But at least one major uncertainty is out of the way. So plenty happening on the economic front, plenty happening on the political front. Great watching ahead. And now, I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with the unbelievably legendary rocker, Tommy James. Well, our special guest today is Tommy James, one of the greatest recording artists in history. Uh, Tommy, good to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. And uh, this man's had a remarkable career, 23 single gold records, nine albums, gold or platinum, over 110 million copies sold. In fact, in 1969, I think you outsold the Beatles in uh, singles that year. In singles, not albums. That's, uh, that's correct. Well, we're going to get to that revolution you talk about in your book. 
uh, over 60 movie tracks, 50 TV shows, including Breaking Bad. What, 13 movies in the past year? That's or, right. It's been an amazing year, yes. Countless commercials, 300 cover versions, which is a testament to uh, your music, including something I don't think has ever happened before. Years ago, Billy Idol did Money Money Money. Tiffany did I Think We're Alone Now. And one week, Idol was number one. Then the next week, Tiffany was number one. That's Both right. of your, your songs. Others who uh, have done your songs, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, Dolly Parton, even the Boston Pops. And several years ago, you penned a bestseller, critically acclaimed memoir called Me, The Mob and the Music. One Hell of a Ride with Tommy James and the Shondells, which has been a basis for a movie. But as you've pointed out, there's Hollywood Time, which makes a snail look like an Olympic sprinter. <laughs> and uh, and uh, But it looks like it now is uh, finally underway. You've got a producer, Barbara Dufina, who did uh, Goodfellas, among others. You've got a director. You've got a screenplay writer. And... Uh, Who's going to play you? Do you know that yet? Oh, brother, I got to leave that to the grown-ups. You know, I uh, honestly, uh, the real challenge is to find an actor who plays guitar as badly as I do. Uh, They've got their work cut out for them. I think uh, we'll take that with a proverbial (laughs) grain of salt. And they're going to do a play after the movie. Uh, I thought a great title would be Jersey Boy, since Mm. you live in New Jersey, but uh, that that might not uh, fly. I don't know. That's not bad. (laughs) And uh, you're still doing tours. You have a radio show in Sirius XM called Getting Together with Tommy James every mm-hmm. Sunday evening yeah. from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 60s on 6 Channel. And you can go to TommyJames.com to find out what you're up to. And your latest album is appropriately titled Alive. Yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I got to know you at the New Jersey Hall of Fame. All right. And uh, delighted to have you here. You've had an unbelievable life. You were born in one of the greatest years of civilization, 1947. Yes, indeed. That's the year I was born. So uh, we we were baby boomers. I like that. They call us boomers now. I want to keep that baby part in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, But uh, as a youngster, you were a child model. But uh, your music was the center of your life uh, almost from the beginning. Right. Starting, tell us about the ukulele, your first foray into show business. Well, I was was four years old, and my grandfather uh, bought me a ukulele. And it was one of those Arthur Godfrey uh, ukulele. You remember Arthur yes. Godfrey. Yes, <laughs> I'm old enough to remember Arthur Godfrey, great TV personality. Yes, it had one of those Arthur Godfrey tuners things on it. So you you uh, you didn't actually have to play the chords. You pushed a button. And uh, I, I finally, when I was, oh, I get, I'd had it about a month, I looked under and saw where the, the uh, strings were being pushed by the buttons. That was my first big career move, by the way. And so I, uh, I learned how to play uh, everything on the radio. I could, I could play, you know, and sing and uh, started singing. And when I was nine years old, uh, Elvis Presley did his first uh, Ed Sullivan show. And um, that was it for me. As soon as I saw the guitar, uh, the ukulele went out the window and uh, I had to have a guitar. So my mom bought me a guitar. And boy, that started uh, me down a long road. Your father managed hotels, mm-hmm. motels, and the like, and right. you moved to Wisconsin. And you say in your book, 
cannot begin to tell you how excited being alone in a bar was to a nine-year-old. That's you're, right. You're, you're an only child, and it wasn't the booze you were after. It was the Wurlitzer. The tell us about box. that. Absolutely. Well, uh, my father uh, uh, and mother together managed a hotel in Wisconsin. My dad was in the hotel business for a long time. And uh, uh, the first place I headed for was the bar. I don't know. It's just, you know, when you're forbidden to go somewhere and it was empty and it was just, you know, the middle of the afternoon. And I went down and I started, uh, they had one of the old, uh, uh, what is it, 11, 10, 15, 10, 15 uh, Wurlitzer with the bubbles going up the side and uh, played 78s. And I went in and uh, the first record I played was Long Tall Sally. To me, that was a, a that very, the little Richard. That version? was an epiphany. That 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 was that was quite a moment because from that moment on, I was just hooked on rock and roll, and that's a true story. That's that's really how how uh, it happened to me to make the the big move into rock. And uh, one of the examples that comes out of your life is how many things you're really not in control of. It's in the hands of the fates, well, the gods, God. It, it It's amazing. And one of them, uh, you talk about a chance meeting with a kid called Mike Booth that you said changed your life. <laughs> oh. Tell us about that. Well, we're, we're going back to uh, school now. This is, uh, <laughs> this is seventh grade. Um, yeah, well, this fellow, Mike Booth, who was a drummer, he was a year ahead of me in school. And they said, why don't we try out for the variety show? Boy, you really did your homework. This is amazing. Um, uh, so we, we did. We, we put a little band together, and that was ended up being my first group. We called ourselves the Echoes, and uh, we uh, did the variety show, and the audience stood up. We, I couldn't believe it. I think we played Lonesome Town by Ricky Nelson, I think <laughs> If I remember right. There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away. And uh, so we we kept the band together, and we we had a, a piano and a guitar and uh, I think a saxophone, and uh, we talked somebody else into playing guitar. We had two ended up with two guitars. And played, uh, you know, teen dances. And uh, my first gig was at the American Legion Hall in Niles, Michigan, my hometown. And uh, your college education was yeah. actually the Spinet Record Shop. Yes. T tell us about well, that. <laughs> well, when I was 14 years old, uh, I got uh, a job in a local record store in Niles, Michigan, my hometown, uh, called the Spinet Record Shop. And uh, uh, the lady there sort of became my second mother. Uh, it was amazing. Um, I was selling records as well as uh, mopping the floor and cleaning the ashtrays and doing the windows and stuff. And I got an amazing education in the record business. Reading uh, the trades and the like. The trade papers, uh, uh uh, the, the the information on the record labels, the songwriters, the publishers, um, the record companies. And, of course, I didn't know that I would, you know, s to this very day be 
uh, using the data and the information that I learned in that little record store. It just seemed like, you know, no big, th- no big deal, and I was just picking this stuff up. But I got to learn so much about retail and about uh, the whole operation. The record business was an amazing little machine. It truly was. You could make a record on Monday and have it in the stores by Friday. And and it was just astonishing that... that Which in those days is a delivery miracle. Yes, and it was a real product. It wasn't downloading. We're talking about pieces of of plastic uh, going from the pressing plant to the distributor to the one-stop to the record store in three days and then it would be on the radio and it, it, i mean it was just an amazing little machine and i got to learn all that stuff in the record shop one of the lessons you learned tell us about the rivieras oh my god and uh <laughs> and uh and, yeah. and and you were told don't be envious learn you can do it too right. t- t- tell us about that uh well uh the rivieras who had big hit with california sun uh were friends of mine, and uh, we were competitors. And uh, of course, everyone back then was trying to, uh, you know, make a record. And you know, having a record was such a big deal. It didn't matter if it was on the world's smallest label; just you had your name on a record. And so, um, the Rivieras, uh, who I, you know, I liked them, but they were a local band and. Kind of nothing, and I so I didn't pay much attention to him. Um, uh, their manager came in the record shop and asked if he could leave some records on consignment. And I look at it, and it's California Sun by, which was an old R&B song by the Rivieras. Okay, we'll take some. So um, all of a sudden that night, I hear the record on WLS in Chicago. The biggest station in the United States. It was, you know, literally the biggest 50,000-watt station in the country. And um, uh, all of a sudden I hear this, what I thought was a real mm, piece of, you know, (laughs) and being raved about on the air, and I'm going, no. And gradually I got more jealous and more jealous as the week went on because I'd hear it more and more and it was on other stations too and uh, jumped on the national charts. The national charts, I couldn't believe, on Riviera Records, which was their you know hometown label. And uh, then suddenly, the week after, it, it jumps higher and higher. Pretty soon it's top 10. This finky little record. Then it goes number one. And... I just am beside myself. So I'm so jealous I can't stand it. So uh, Dickie, who is the, the lady at the record shop, you know, grasped me by the, sh- by the show. She said, now, Tom, now listen, you know what this means, don't you? It means if they can do it, you can do it. That's a local label. And that little distribution deal they had with, uh, it was an outfit called USA out of Chicago. Uh, uh, you can do the same thing. Just do it. And so... Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, anyway, that that really spurred me on, and we ended up doing it. 
doing by accident, but yeah. So uh, before we get to the the big story, how did you get the name Shondells? I made it up in study hall. This is true. Um, the um, anything with an E L L S on the end sounds musical, and or at least it Bobby did. Bobby Rydell. And- yeah, well, you know the Hondells, the Crondells, and you know. So uh, anyway, the Shondells. I I like it. Sounded kind of effervescent. And uh, I, I like the way it rolled off my tongue. I just, Shondells. Just sounded right. And uh, so we changed our name. We, we were called, by the way, the Tornadoes. We changed our name from the Echoes to the Tornadoes to the Shondells. And so that was made up in study hall. So now the trumpets go off. You've yeah. done a few, <laughs> a few, you, uh, you, you've done a few records. Tell us the hanky-panky story. Sure, oh boy. Well, this was nothing short of a miracle. And um, I've often felt a great, I don't know, I've often felt the good Lord is watching out for me because this was truly uh, remarkable. And the longer I'm in this business, the more I realize how remarkable. The, um, what happened was we had, uh, in the record shop, uh, we had two little label deals before I was out of high school. And um, the second was a, a little outfit called Snap Records that was being headed up by a local DJ named Jack Douglas. And uh, not the famous Jack Douglas, but uh, the, the, the less than famous <laughs> Jack Douglas. And he says, Tom, listen, uh, you know, you're, you've been in the studio before. You want, let's, you want to make some records? I said, I thought about it for about two seconds, and I said, yes! <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, we went in the local radio studio where he was a DJ, WNIL and Niles, and cut four sides, and one of them was called Hanky Panky, which was a song I'd heard another group play and saw the reaction. We wrote, uh, we, I, the only lines I could remember was, my baby does the hanky-panky, and we made up all the rest. So, uh, you know, we sang that 106 times and then uh, threw in a little, little bridge, a little, little uh, B section, and um, uh, called it hanky-panky. So that came out and did pretty good for us. It actually opened up some doors. We were on all the jukeboxes, but then it died. You know, we had no distribution, so it just, so... Uh, we, we gave up on that, and uh, I graduated from high school in 65, and I took my band on the road, and we did uh, clubs. Here, here, here's another miracle. Yes. You go to a club in Wisconsin. Yeah. Looks like you've totally bombed out because the guy went broke. T- t- walk <laughs> us through that story, sure. how fate just takes these Well, uh, in early 66... Uh, we're playing this dumpy little club in Janesville, Wisconsin. And uh, right in the middle of my two weeks, uh, the club goes belly up because the guy didn't pay his taxes. <laughs> they shut the place down, put ta- yellow tape around like a murder had happened. Just, and um, so I, uh, you know, begged to get our equipment out, and we went back home feeling like real dogs. And I walk in the door, and uh, the, 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 the next day, I get a call that changed my life. I get a call from Pittsburgh uh, from Which a— people uh, didn't realize that 
today was a creative center of talent back in those yes. days. Yes, it was. They had their own little record business. And uh, anyway, so what had happened is that somebody in Pittsburgh, the distributor called, called up, called me, tracked me down because it said Snap Records, Niles, Michigan on the label. And who did they call? But the Spinet Record Shop uh, uh, to see if uh, they had heard of me. And of course, I had worked there. They gave them my number. And they called me and told me that Hanky Panky, this fluky little record that I had done two years earlier, was sitting at number one. And they told me that, that uh, they bootlegged the record, <laughs> that they had a little operation going in Pittsburgh, and that they bootlegged the record and they would take old obscure records and sell them locally and bootleg them and nobody would ever find out about it. But in this case, the thing exploded and... So uh, they tracked me down and asked if I would come to Pittsburgh to play some play gigs and to also uh, do newspaper interviews and stuff, do t TV stuff, radio stuff. So I, I didn't know what to do. I went with the original producer of the record, Jack Douglas, and he drove me to Pittsburgh. I couldn't put the original band back together because they were a couple of them were drafted and stuff. So... Uh, I went to Pittsburgh and uh, met the people who were involved in all this. And sure enough, outside the city limits, I'm nobody. As soon as I head into town, you know, you go over the bridge yes. into Pittsburgh. And as soon as I did that, I'm, I've got, I'm a rock star. I got the number one record. I'm on every station, either coming in the middle of the record over here, end of the record over here. And I just couldn't believe it. So um, I did... Uh, some local TV, and um, uh, sure enough, uh, uh, you know, things just came together. I sort of grabbed uh, a local group to be the Shondells, and the new Shondells, and um, a week later, we're in New York uh, to sell the record to a major label. And uh, we got a yes from everybody. I, c I couldn't believe it. We got a yes from Columbia, Epic, RCA, RCA uh, Atlantic. Atlantic, that's right. And the last place we took the record to was Roulette, which was a pretty good little independent label. But, you know, I was so blown away by everything else. I thought, well, we'll be on CBS or, you know, one of the major, one of the corporate labels, you know. So I go to bed that night feeling so great. Uh, and the next morning, the phone starts ringing about 9, 10 o'clock. And it's all the other labels that had said yes the day before, saying, listen, Tom, we got a pass. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you got a pass? I thought we had a deal. And Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic uh, told me the truth, that Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, had called all the other labels and backed them down. He said, this is my record. <laughs> And scared them all. Like that. <laughs> That's right. And uh, uh, scared them all. And uh, we were apparently going to be on roulette records. It was the first offer I couldn't refuse. And what, <laughs> of course, what we didn't know uh, is that roulette records, in addition to being a functioning little indie label and a pretty good one, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. And of course, we learned all this stuff incrementally uh, 
because we'd be told by other people. But, you know, I'd start meeting people up in Morris's office. And a week later, I'd see him on TV doing the perp walk out of a warehouse in New Jersey. I said, isn't that the guy we just met in Morris's office? And it would be. And uh, so, so describe that uh, meeting. First the first meeting, meeting with, yeah. With Morris. Uh, they're telling you all the great things they're going to sure, do. Sure, sure. And then two big guys come in. Right. And uh, Morris goes off. Boombas. He goes well, off to talk to them, and uh, you hear parts of the conversation. Clearly, they're not there discussing playdates for their kids. Right. That's true. Um, yeah. Well, the first time I met Morris Levy was quite a, an event. Um, uh, you know, the, night, the day we signed our contracts with Roulette. Um, Morris Levy is right out of the movies. I mean, he's big. He's, you know, you grab his hand, it's like, grabbing a catcher's mitt, you know, it, 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 he, and he talks like this, but he, he's not, he's like watching a great actor. You can't take your eyes off him. And he said, all right, kid, come on in. <laughs> so <laughs> we go in and I, I go, I go in, I'm by myself. And in there in the office is Murray the K Great disc jockey in New York. George Goldner, who was Morris's partner and one of the biggest producers. He did oh, all the doo-wop stuff in the 50s. And, and, uh, and then there's Red Schwartz, who's a, a, the national promotion director at Roulette, who really uh, became a great friend of mine. And um, uh, a, a couple of the employees there at Roulette. And so I, I'm... Uh, kind of in over my head. I know it. I'm, I'm like overwhelmed with all this. And they start, he starts telling me, yeah, here's what we're going to do, <laughs> you know? And, uh, so I'm very happy, uh, about all that. So they, he turns to me and says, so what's next? Like, I know something, <laughs> You know, like, I know something. Well, you had, uh, you know, your record's number one. You're supposed to know what to do next. I had no idea. And I certainly didn't have any other material, you know. I'm, so uh, I'm really, I said, well, we're working on a few follow-ups. Uh, we've got it. We've got a, I, what we think is a follow-up. We're working on a few things. And then somebody comes in and says, I told you he was a smart kid, Mush. So... You know, this began my meeting. So I realized I really was in over my head, and I didn't know uh, quite what to I didn't know how we got here, you know, much less how to do it again. So, uh, you know, that was kind of a scary moment. And uh, as you say in the book— Oh, the Goombas. Uh, yeah. I wanted to hear about the Goombas. Well, uh, so uh, as right in the middle of this meeting, uh, two real big guys walk up to the Morris's doors and Moish, can we see you a minute? They all talked like that. I don't know they went to school, but um, so uh, Morris says, "Excuse me." He gets up and he walks over, and uh, you can kind of hear the conversation. He's, they broke some guy's legs out in New Jersey because he was bootlegging records, and and uh, so suddenly, uh, you know, everybody's embarrassed at this, and so Red Schwartz jumps up and says, uh, "So, this is your first trip to New York, Tom?" <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Finally, Morris comes over and sits back down, and uh, the meeting goes on. But, you know, that, that really gave me a great insight into who I was dealing with. 
And uh, as you say, uh, uh, the uh, well, working with Morris was uh, the royalty department at oh, Roulette oh, oh, yeah, was yeah, the yeah. quietest place on that's earth. That's right. That's right. Well, that he was, wasn't going to pay you. That was the joke uh, around the promotion men was, you know, scientists were trying to f- discover the quietest place on earth. And it turned out to be the royalty department at Roulette Records. So anyway, that was the joke, but it was very true. <laughs> and um, uh, yes. So anyway, the point is that Morris and Roulette uh, made Hanky Panky number one Literally everywhere. You knew how to promote records. Yeah, they do. They did. And and uh, uh, so got us off to a great start. And we ended up with 23 gold singles at Roulette and uh, 32 chart records. And so, I mean, would what? that have happened everywhere else? I'd, I, I'm telling you, I am willing to bet. I, I don't think um, we would have had anywhere near that kind of success if we had ended up going with one of the corporate labels because we would have had tremendous competition. Um, you know, we would at Roulette, they actually needed us because they hadn't had a hit in three years. So they really rolled out the red carpet. Getting paid was <laughs> another story. You know, crime doesn't pay. Um, but um, at any rate, it was, it was uh, you know, I got to learn my craft is the point. I learned every aspect of the record business. What I didn't learn at the Spinet Record Shop, I got to learn at Roulette about, uh, you and know. As from you the, say, you never would have had that at another no. label where they had other artists, no. competitions. You'd have been under somebody's and we'd have been, thumb. Especially with a fluky record like Hanky Panky, we would have been turned over to, uh, you know, somebody in the A&R department at Columbia, say, and that's probably the last. We'd have been lucky to be a one-hit wonder, you know. So, uh, but you did, you were allowed, he did allow you to keep money that you earned from concerts, commercials. Never well, enough, yeah, he but, didn't have much to do with that. But, uh, you know, <laughs> mechanical royalties were just not going to happen. And when we finally realized this, you know, we, we, it finally dawned on us that we weren't getting paid. Um and the publishing money, by the way, was also uh, lumped in with all that. And the excuse, co- of course, was you're spending too much money in the studio. We weren't spending, you know, you know, every song was, a, was a, you know, we had, you know, the first eight records were all gold records and every album was a gold or platinum album. So there's no way we were in the hole, but we just accepted it. And when we finally realized that this wasn't going to happen, we had to make a, a conscious decision Um are we going to, because we were having such tremendous success there, are we going to uh, spoil that all? And, and Or what worse, you know, cause we could be in real danger because, you know, they had done that to Jimmy Rogers. Explain what happened to Jimmy Rogers. Well, Jimmy Rogers was a roulette artist in the 50s. Honeycomb and Kisses Sweeter Than Wine and a right. bunch of hits. And um, he sued him for non-payment. And he was very bold in that and just he wouldn't stop and he kept after him. And finally, uh, he was riding down an L.A. freeway and got pulled over by what he thought was a cop. And they damn near beat him to death. He was left unconscious, bleeding, and uh, they thought he was dead. He was left for dead. And um, he survived, but just barely, and he was never the same again. And um, 
ruined his career and uh, uh, slit, his, slit his throat. And uh, it was uh, really terrible what they did to him. And so, you know, we'd heard that story and we knew what they were capable of up there. And uh, so we just uh, decided to keep our mouth shut and because we were making a tremendous amount of money on the road and, and uh, from BMI and, and uh, the other avenues of, of revenue. And uh, so uh, we just decided we'd keep that to ourselves and stay friends and, and just take the hits, <laughs> literally. So uh, what's amazing, too, in those years is the creativity and the output. Yes. I, mean, I remember growing up rock bands would have one, maybe two hits, right. most three. You were turning them out regularly. We were so blessed, so fortunate to uh, uh, have the attention of the public for, for that long. We, um, and of course, Morris was cracking the whip too, you know, and at the same time, because basically the motivation was Morris's greed and it worked. <laughs> All I can say is that, uh, you know, he'd crack the whip and we'd come up with another record. Um, and, and they did know how to promote, promote singles. They, they truly did. Singles was uh, what they did, and that was the commodity at the, at the time. When, we, when I first got into the business, um, the model was uh, you put out a single. If it has legs you do another single and an album. But you didn't do that album until you knew you had a market for it. Made all the sense in the world, right? So um, you'd release your album, which was always quickly thrown together, with your second single. That was the model. And if you got lucky, maybe there was a third single and maybe there's another single on the album. So, uh, uh, of course, that's not how it's done today at all, you know. Was, we're going to get to the uh, yeah, the, seismic year, yes, 1968. Yeah, right. Uh, your most what, difficult creation was Crystal Blue Persuasion. Mm. Describe that one. Well, um, Crystal Blue was, uh, uh, of course, from that magic summer of 1969. And, uh, uh, you know, it was just a very different kind of a record for us. Uh, I had, uh, we had just played uh, Atlanta at a college in Atlanta, and a fellow came up with this poem that he gave me called Crystal Persuasion. And uh, I just was struck by those combination of words. You know, I said, that's, that's a beautiful combination of words. I don't know what it means, but, and it, it, but it was, the poem he had written was from the book of Revelation in the Bible. And I said, well, that's that's really cool. So we we wrote it that night and uh, went back to the hotel room and wrote it and went in the studio and we, you know, it was, had kind of that Latin feel and, uh, but we way overproduced it. Uh, we had electric guitars. We had a full set of drums. We had, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, any, anything you can think of we threw in the record and when we got done, we just looked at each other and said, that's not crystal blue anymore. I don't know what that is. So we spent the next three or four weeks unproducing the record and pulling stuff out and see if this works with that. And that so when the whole thing, we pulled the drums out. We All that was left was a bongo, uh, 
uh, flamenco guitar, a little of the tremolo guitar playing rhythm, and the organ. We had to let it breathe, and that became Crystal Blue Persuasion. And, uh, um, you know, it was the longest it ever took us to make a record, but when we got done with it, we were we really loved the thing. And it was Morris's favorite record of ours, by the way. This gets to uh, back in 1968. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you do a first. You were uh, the first band to go with a politician. Tell, right. us, about, tell us about Hubert right. Humphrey. He was the Democrat. We were candidate. waiting for you to call, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, well, we were at a rally that Robert Kennedy did with the other Democrats running that, that year. And uh, uh, I was, believe it or not, a Democrat in 1968. <laughs> so at least I thought I was. I didn't. I was 21. What did I? I just didn't want to go to Vietnam. So um, the, uh, at this rally in southern Manhattan, was uh, Bobby Kennedy, Eugene McCarthy, uh, the mayor of New York was running that year, John Lindsay, do you remember? I remember John Lindsay. And um, um, a couple of other people were there. Anyway, uh, uh, we, as a result of doing that, got put on a, some kind of list. And all of a sudden, we get a call from Hubert Humphrey's office. Hubert Humphrey, of course, running for president that year. He was year. vice president of the United and, States. Exactly. And we get a call, would we appear uh, at uh, one of his rallies? And we said yes and uh, be proud to do it. And uh, so we met him uh, down in uh, West Virginia uh, at an airplane hangar. And uh, I think it was wheeling at an airplane hangar and where they did the first rally. And he set, he set, a, set me up right on the DS beside his wife, Muriel, who was beautiful. She was, she was incredible. And uh, 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 show, showed us off, you know, that this was, uh, you know, he was making inroads into the youth and all that. And then he asked if if we would, uh, you know, we would sort of open the show <laughs> and uh, do four or five songs, and then we'd sit down, and then he would give a speech. And he, I guess he liked that. He asked if we would do the rest of the campaign with him. And he then he asked me if I would be president's advisor on youth affairs. And I go, oh my God, I'm 21 years old. What are you talking about? And you made a joke. Uh, yes. <laughs> I said, well, believe me, the youth are having affairs, and I'm just the one to look into. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, he laughed at that. And anyway, so uh, bottom line was that we ended up doing the whole campaign. Over 50 tours. Yeah. That 90-day uh, interlude with, yes, with Humphrey. Changed the whole record business. It was like an extinction on the earth. Absolutely. The hit. Walk, walk us through what That's happened really in that true. amazing— Period. Well, when uh, we left, of course, we left in August, and uh, we, we'd come back and forth uh, to New York. Uh, by the way, they gave us our own private jet, you know, Learjet, and uh, uh, so we could make as many of the rallies as we could. So in, the, in that period of time, 
uh, everything changed in the in the music business. Um, we got back in November, and uh, when we left, the big acts on the radio were the the Rascals, the Association. Oh, um, I'm leaving a bunch of people out: Mitch Ryder, uh, the Buckinghams, Gary Puckett. When we got back six weeks later, the big acts on the radio. Oh, but by the way, they were all singles acts. Right. When we got back ninety days later, uh, it was Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Led Zeppelin, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, you know, Joe Cocker, all album acts. In that ninety-day period, the industry went from singles to albums, and FM radio had come in. FM up to that point had only played jazz and classical music. Now they're playing rock and roll, and uh, so. This opened up a whole new world. All the, the, the technology from the space program was coming down into the studios, both radio and TV. And uh, it was just amazing to watch that happen. So when we got back, we realized that uh, we had to take a quantum leap with our music, with the way we did business. With uh, We had to sell albums. And Roulette had never really done that, you know. Um, so uh, we were very, very fortunate that we had been working on this little thing called Crimson and Clover because that opened up the gates for us because we started producing ourselves at that moment. And that's another thing. What if we'd started producing ourselves and that record had stiffed? I mean, that, would have been, that could have been the end of our career right there very easily. But uh, Crimson and Clover, the album, turned out to be, uh, up to that point, the biggest thing we'd ever done. The single sold five and a half million units right there in 1960, early 69 came out. And uh, the, the album, of course, we had Crystal Blue Persuasion from the album, Do Something To Me, Sugar on Sunday, which was done by another group called The Click. And so the album uh, really worked. Uh, Hubert Humphrey did the liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe that? It was, it was wonderful. I mean, so all that sort of tied in together with the campaign and uh, the Crimson and Clover project. And it was really a, a magical time. Um, one of the things you discuss in the book is uh, you were doing pills, you were doing the booze. Yep. You had a collapse in Birmingham. I and, got back uh, to Roulette, by the way, and they said, what in the hell are you doing? They had read all this stuff uh, about uh, Tommy James uh, near death in Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm like, uh, that, you know, I had been up for two days. I just fainted on stage, but they said I looked like I had died, and they reported that, and it was, it was ugly. But you, uh, you say in your book, I was becoming dark, a stranger to myself. Mm -hmm. A confrontation was coming with Morris. Yeah. Walk us through the 1971 gang war. Sure. in New York and what happened there? Well, um, what happened was, uh, in well, I'll just say it like it is. In 1971, 
there was uh, a gang war in New York because the Gambino family was taking over. And uh, Morris was on the wrong side. Just that simple. In, in February, Valentine's Day of 1969, uh, Vito Genovese dies in prison in Atlanta. And so they have the meetings up in Morris's office about who's gonna take over. And so at this meeting, and, they, and I happened to be there and Morris calls me in the office and he introduces me to uh, murder as well, I guess you call, you know, uh, Vinny the Chin Giganti, uh, Tony Salerno. Fat Tony. Yeah. Tommy Eboli. And um, who, by the way, Tommy Eboli was, was also Vito Genovese's, uh, uh, you know, go-between. He would come back with whatever he wanted, uh, wanted done. So um, anyway, I, and I, Morris introduces me to all these people, and I know it's serious because he grabs me by the shoulders and he calls people Mr. Morris never called anybody Mr. This is Mr. Giganti. And I'm, so I, I was on my best behavior and I just shook everybody's hand. And uh, so uh, that meeting, or those, those set of meetings uh, determined that Tommy Eboli then would be the boss of the family. And, uh, you know, up until this point, we had not, you know, it was sort of a joke. You know, we went out of our, of our way to not pay attention. And uh, so in 71, uh, this all became a, a big issue because the Gambinos were taking over in New York. And uh, I don't know, something like 300 people had been, had been killed, uh, gangsters. I was told by my attorney. Morris had already fled. Morris and Nate McCalla had gone to uh, Spain uh, and sort of left the rest of us holding the bag there at Roulette. Uh, as it turned out, I found out years later, he never left New York. But that was the story. And uh, so what happened was I was told by my attorney uh, it would be a good idea if I left town for a while until this blew over because if they uh, went after Morris and they couldn't get Morris, they'd go after whatever was making Morris money, he says, that's you. And uh, I said, oh, that's just great. So I'm on the lam because uh, we didn't really know what was going to happen. So finally, uh, we thought everything had calmed down. And in early 72, Morris came back. And in June of 72, I'm playing the Brooklyn Paramount Theater. And uh, about uh, six Blocks from the theater that night, the night that I'm in 72 when I'm playing the Brooklyn Paramount Theater, about six blocks, and we thought everything was, was over and done with, about six blocks away, Tommy Eboli gets murdered. And uh, I, I don't know. I just wanted out. And so I drank about a pint of something and came back up to the office and I, I, I told Morris, I, I got to, this is it. I, I can't deal with this anymore. You got to let me go. And he says, you ain't going anywhere. 
And so this became a real tug of war. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, we ended up yelling at each other. And, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know where this was going. I never did another record, another album. Um, but he had several singles in the can, and he kept releasing them. He'd, he'd release them. And finally, in 74, uh, he let me go. But I almost had to ruin my career to get off the label. And finally, in 74, he let me go. But my publishing, my publishing had to stay there because I was signed until 79. And... Uh, so I got as far away as I could go. I went out to Berkeley and signed with Fantasy Records out on the West Coast. That was as physically far away as I could get. <laughs> and we did a couple albums at Fantasy, and they did okay. And uh, Morris had warned you about yet an extraordinary collection of guns. And he warned you, don't do it. Well, So I, this, this gets to... I've never told this story, but I, I'll tell it today. Uh, I had, you know, a, a collection of pistols. And uh, this is early 70s. And um, a, 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 I, was, I was seeing a shrink in 1971. I could have just stopped taking pills. That would have been a lot easier. Um, but anyway, I was, uh, I, it fell out of my briefcase. I had a pistol that fell out of my briefcase. And so against all rules and regulations, uh, the the psychiatrist calls Morris Levy and says, hey, you should be aware that uh, Tommy has a gun, and I, I don't know, uh, it might be dangerous. Stupidest thing in the world for a doctor to do. So Morris comes up to my apartment in New York and physically takes all the guns that I that I'd had and I guess in a way I was grateful but uh, you know Morris did several things like that over the years that really were above and beyond the call of duty it was really a relationship almost like a uh, an abusive father-son relationship uh, it's the closest thing picture I can paint you know where uh, he beats the kid up but he sends him to college <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that was uh, that was my relationship with Morris, and uh, uh, so anyway, he took the guns, and I was I was he took them up to his farm, and I was kind of grateful for that actually. Um, but this uh, your fascination with guns led to an incident in New Jersey. You had too much to drink. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay. Something that could have destroyed you but ended up saving you. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I basically uh, had pulled out uh, my gun collection. I got an another one <laughs> and uh, was fooling around with them. And uh, my, my son got scared and called the police. And they came, and this is, oh, God, this is... 1985 and I uh, was I was arrested and I uh, they took the guns away too which I guess I'm thankful for and uh, uh, nothing came of it thankfully because uh, it could have been some serious business but as a result I ended up going to the Betty Ford Center and uh, I was 
very, very lucky. I'm very fortunate that nobody really in my in my career really knew. I mean, the promoters didn't know. The you know, it had not gotten around. Another year or two, it would have, no doubt about it. But I was very lucky that 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 information never got around. I was very ashamed of it. And I went to the Betty Ford Center. This is uh, in uh, 1986. And I got off everything, literally everything. And to this day, uh, it's been uh, one straight shot. And uh, the good Lord has really blessed me. And and I'm happy to say I haven't had a thing to drink or popped a pill or anything else since 1986. So uh, I'm very thankful for sobriety. Tell us, though, uh, about... You're told after your rehab, take it easy, go slow. Oh, yes. That's and your a, first concert ends up being in Madison Square Garden. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, well, what happened was, you know, I, 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 I sat with the counselors and I said, now listen, my, my demon, if you will, my, the bottom line for me is performing. And since I was a teenager— I've had something before I would perform. And I said, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I, I would drink or pop a pill or something before I'd go on stage since I was a kid. Starting with Budweiser. Yes, that's right. And um, uh, the bottom line is, you know, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do this. And of course, then they start with the with the AA platitudes of, well, you'll do it one step at a time, and you'll take it a day at a time, and you'll let go and let go. I said, wait, stop, stop, stop. This is me you're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> a terrible thing to say, and uh, 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 you know, like I was special. And uh, uh, they said, believe me, let go and let God. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? They said, well, we suggest that you start out. Uh, in clubs, small clubs, maybe just get your get your legs again, get get the feel of what it's like to go on stage without chemicals, and and just just get the lay of the land, and then work your way up to the bigger places. I said, okay, that makes sense. So the first gig I take is Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrified, but I I got to do this. I got to face this down, and so. Uh, one of my counselors, Tom Tucker, who was uh, who's since passed away, but he was, God bless him, at his own expense, flew from California, uh, from from Palm Springs to uh, New York to be with me that night doing doing this doing the show, and um, <clears throat> so it's a big deal. The place is packed, and I'm on stage, and the first song is dragging the line, and I'm. Making a live in the old hard way. And so I muddled my way through that. By the third song, I'm having a ball. I can't believe it. That all of this, I, that I was acting, you know, and I'd say, well, at this point in the song, I should wave over here. And at this point, I should wave over here. And I was going through these motions for years and years. And uh, suddenly I'm in the now and the people are reacting and it's like uh, there's screams down here. Yeah, and it's like all of us. I'm having fun. I can't believe 
I'm in control of this thing. I'm having fun. And, and I, that demon was dead. That demon was dead that moment. And I was, it was like I, the liberating feeling was unbelievable because it was a lie. All those years, it was a damn lie. Not only could I do it, but I did it 100% better. And I couldn't wait for the next show. I mean, that was one of the most dramatic moments of my life was that night at Madison Square Garden. Um, Morris, you see one more time. The feds finally get him, oh, yeah. which uh, nobody thought was going to be possible. He yeah. starts to sell off his businesses. So eventually, long story short, your library ends up at Sony and you're getting a thing called royalties. Well, yeah. Uh, basically, what happened was uh, Morris finally got nailed. They, the feds came after him. This is in also in 86. It's funny how it all came together in 86, isn't it? Um, Morris was arrested. Uh, the thing that finally got him, well, let's put it this way. Uh, Irv Azoff, the head of uh, uh, MCA Records, had worked out a deal with Morris well, where their overages would have been, uh, Morris was going to peddle and sell them. And uh, so Morris was kind of his agent. And uh, so Morris, being Morris, he had a deal with uh, a guy down in Philly you know, Morris kept all the good stuff and um, was still charging the guy the full rate. Well, the guy wouldn't pay. And so Morris and his uh, uh, associate uh, went down and beat the guy up. And the guy reported him to the, to the FBI. And uh, Morris ended up getting convicted and uh, to 10 years in prison. And uh, before he went to prison. He unloaded all the roulette masters, including my stuff, and the publishing. And what happened was uh, Morris uh, died of cancer before he could serve a day in prison. This all happened really fast. And uh, Morris asked for me, and I was supposed to, I was going to go back uh, uh, to see him up, up at his farm. The day before... I could get back the night before I could get back. I was doing a concert in Chicago. Um, I couldn't make it back before he died. He died that night, and I never got a chance to say goodbye. And uh, so it was a. Uh, I miss Morris. I really do, and I. I it, isn't that a strange thing to say? But you know, if it wasn't for Morris Levy, there wouldn't have been a Tommy James. Um. Amazing stories uh, that uh, we, we, we can't cover. But uh, tell us how you see music today. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I think it's homogenized, cookie cutter, a lot of sound. They sound songs all alike. Yours live forever. You've made, you well, go to a concert. You. And, and I've, I was very fortunate that I made it when I did. I mean, because uh, I, I have great empathy for kids trying to make it today in the music business because... Uh, it not only is the most difficult; it's it's you don't have the attention of of the of the music buying crowd. You just, it's a whole different it mindset. When I got in the business, um, it, everybody was looking for the next hit group. Everybody was you know TV people, radio people, 
uh, the record companies were all looking for the next big act. Um, gradually, what happened is that the industry uh, outgrew itself. You know, then we went from singles to albums. That was a huge move. Uh, but the record companies made tremendous amounts of money. Then when they went from, from vinyl to CD, that was another huge moment. And um, uh, MTV came on and really goosed the whole industry. It was great. But then you had to have videos, and the video became more important. And then finally, with Michael Jackson and all of the, the dancing and the, and the, uh, the extravaganza, you know, it be, your stage show became more important than your records. And then gradually that became old hat. And so it was always one-upsmanship until finally today, suddenly with the new technology, and all the mobile gadgets um, uh, and, and downloading and streaming. Uh, the delivery system is so different today. Uh, that really, the technology has changed everything. And so guys like me are, are very, who have uh, established uh, hits and and people the, the music gets used that I'm so lucky so blessed to, to have made it when I did I have a show on Sirius XM and I go up there I'm astonished at this place what an what a magic place to work uh, the whole panorama of the music business is at Sirius X what's left of the music business is at Sirius XM and uh, uh Radio uh, has become less and less important, uh, but satellite radio and all the things they can do, uh, uh, it's really a magical place to work. I'm so glad to be there doing a show. I'm so glad to be doing a show, coast-to-coast -coast audience in the United States and Canada. You know, it just doesn't get an artist. They want me to play my own records, <laughs> you know, in addition to, you know, and and I, I said, can't you go to jail for that? <laughs> he says, nah, play your own stuff. So uh, uh, honestly, I'm so fortunate and so blessed by the good Lord to be still doing this today. Who, who would have thought in 1966 with a record like Hanky Panky, we'd still be talking about it uh, in the year 2020? It just blows my mind. Well, your music obviously is immortal as long as people... Listen to music. Well, thank you your, so much. Your, your songs will be there. Thank you very much, Tommy, for being with us. And let me say it again, Sirius XM Radio, Sunday evenings, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Go to TommyJames.com to get his next concert. You're a legend, and it's great to have been well, with you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate thank you. it, Steve, very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tommy James, who, as you heard, has indeed been on one hell of a ride. His contribution to music will live on forever, as will his thrilling story. It's sure to make a great film. When will it come out? Who knows? Hollywood takes their times on these things. But perhaps in 2021, perhaps in 2022. I can't give you a save the date, but a movie is in the works. And now we'll turn to my reads of the week. The first one is, Coronavirus Needs a Free Press. It's written by Holman Jenkins, Wall Street Journal. You can find it on WSJ.com. He says the U.S. stands a better chance than Wuhan, China, because the public here is informed. 
Quite a contrast here to what you found in China, where a young doctor who died being interrogated for sounding the alarm, that's why this thing blew up in China before the public was properly informed. Good peace, timely peace. Another one, a hopeful one. This one is entitled, How Simple Blood Tests Could Revolutionize Cancer Treatment. It's written by Sarah Elizabeth Richards. You can find it on smithsonianmag.com. She points out, the latest DNA science can match tumor types to new treatments, and soon, a blood test might be able to detect early signs of cancer. The final one, hey, I can't give up the chance of plugging some of my own writings. This one I penned for foxbusiness.com. It's called Defense Department Reform is Another Unheralded Trump Win. In the Defense Department, there's a new person, the number three person in the Defense Department. I attended her swearing in the other day, Chief Management Officer. Her name is Lisa Hirschman. And already, she and her team have combed out almost $17 billion of savings in the Pentagon in recent months. When was the last time you ever heard of savings in the Defense Department budget? She's doing it. Lisa Hirschman, she is an up-and-comer. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.